0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: The Opinion Line on Quartz 96 FM. Dr. Lisa Guthrie is a consultant in emergency and pre-hospital medicine and she's been putting up a lot of stuff on her instagram lately talking about the acute crisis in our hospitals and how the as you put it lisa how the political perspective differs from the frontline perspective is is that what you're saying to me that you're saying on instagram is that the politicians look upon this one way you see it another way and the two for some strange reason aren't meeting good morning
2: Good morning, PJ. Thanks very much. Um, Yeah, that's exactly it. I I think because I've worked in the Irish emergency medicine system for the last 12 years, I've seen it every year, year in, year out. I see when there's surges. Um, You can kind of almost follow predict what the media report, which is the political perspective normally. Every now and again, they may have a patient or a frontline worker's perspective. However, I think over the last week or two, I've been exceptionally annoyed over the perspectives that are getting trotted out by the political parties um, when actually at the end of the day and my 12 years experience is that this is predictable this is exactly what we know happens every year Mm -hmm. and the result of our acute bed capacity crisis so not having enough beds in our hospitals which has been predicted for the last 20 years however sometimes the political perspective would like to kind of deflect from that Um, And as we saw last week blame the frontline staff for not working hard enough and then wanting us to work harder over a weekend and Mm. this is going to solve all the acute problems.
1: Now over the last weekend just gone more people did work more hours there were some extra shifts but and, and things did move a bit more slick or so we're told but that having been said these are people who are already working a full week and already flat out putting in more hours they shouldn't have to do that.
2: Uh, True. So just if you want to take that point of like things worked more slicker, um, is that if that's got to do with the media reporting of 44% more discharges that happened over the weekend, the figures on that is actually there were 400 discharges on Saturday compared Mm -hmm. to the week previously, which was New Year's Eve, by the way, of 287 discharges in the country. Sure. That's our 278 actually, it was 122 more discharges over a weekend. To where? To... Discharge facilities that uh, possibly aren't coping that well. Anyways, we don't have the bed mm. capacity for step downs, et etc. Or there may be patients that have been discharged in an untimely manner due to the pressures of the politicians and the government saying we need to discharge more patients. So I would actually look on if they're saying that it was more slick over the weekend. Actually, how slick was it? And, and if that's what we're defining as slick by a hundred, that's my word, word by the way. Lisa, that, 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 yeah, prob- yeah, sorry, probably
1: a clumsy choice yeah. of word. Let me let, let me hand the floor to you. You're there on the front line doing this incredibly valuable job every day. Tell me about your day, Lisa. Say 8 to 8 or whatever shift you were. Tell me about your so day. So I was on call and yesterday. I, and I'll shut up until you finished finished.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I think a lot of people are probably, they've heard my ranting on Instagram over this, but I mean, I work very regularly on call at least once every five days. So yesterday I was on call. Um, so I started at nine o'clock yesterday morning. Now I did not physically leave the hospital until quarter past 11 last night. Um, I'm on call from home. You get one or two calls maybe throughout the night for clinical information or if there is a very unwell patient that comes in, a trauma, et cetera, I, I have to physically get my car and go back into the hospital as Um, But I'm back in again for nine o'clock this morning as well. So I've had in total maybe about six and a half hours sleep last night. So I have three young kids have to get them up in the morning and try and get them out as well. So I come back in and I'm doing a normal day's work today. So throughout my whole day yesterday, I'm in my scrubs and runners on the floor seeing patients from triaging. So out in the, where patients are coming into our hospitals and into our emergency departments. And I think people do get a little bit confused that the patients that come into the emergency department do not all translate into patients that are going to be admitted. So where I work in Mayo University Hospital, we see between 100 and 150 patients a day. It tends to go down maybe around the 100, 110 at the weekends. Mondays and Tuesdays are always the busiest days of the emergency departments around the country that that would be statistics so yesterday I don't know offhand but it probably felt about 140 150 patients to come through the door the 24 hour period so not all of those will get admitted between 25 and 30 percent of those patients would normally get admitted now remember we have a growing population and we have an ageing population, so the more patients that are presented to the emergency departments, the more of that 25% is going to be admitted. And that's the general figure around it. So we know what we can plan for for bed capacity over the last 20 years, but unfortunately it just hasn't happened no matter how much we've shouted about it as frontline right. workers.
1: Right. So of the 150, we'll say, if a quarter of those must be admitted, that's mm-hmm. 60, is it? Yeah, just 50-something.
2: Yeah, and it, it does wax and wane 40 between, something,
1: 40 something,
2: yeah, yeah. It, it, and it waxes and wanes between kind of, you know, maybe we might be able to get somebody to a medical assessment unit, maybe in an appointment in two days' time rather than have to come in. We'll try and kind of see where what alternative options that we have for patients' treatments. and um, Patients do unfortunately come in they may need to get a scope done Uh, they've been on on a waiting list for a while with scopes and as we see now that when bed surges happen elective work gets cancelled so patients who are waiting their scopes and waiting their elective work gets cancelled and unfortunately sometimes it hits a point for them that they can't wait anymore Mm. and they actually have to come to the emergency department but this is what we see Day in, day out. It's yes, it's happened probably more in the media eye over the last two weeks or so. But we've had a bed surge in in August of this year. We we have it throughout the years. We have it, and it's just it feels like it falls on deaf ears, unless you know it gets to a point like what it has done over the last two weeks. Yeah, record numbers around trolleys.
1: Go through a topic. A t- it's a term that is used, and you know we have an understanding of what it is, but triage. Triage is stage mm-hmm. one when you get in. Talk to me, Lisa, about what triage is.
2: Yeah, so triage, we use a triaging score, which is an international scoring system. Uh, the basics of it is how quick you need to get emergency care. So we look at lots of different aspects. A, it's, a, it's called the Manchester triage score. So it's not something that we just employ on different hospitals at an ad hoc whim basis. It is looking at to see who's the sickest person and who needs the urgent and emergency care first. So when somebody comes in, just say, for example, with chest pain, they will get certain scoring markers on the triage scoring system. And then by their vitals and by extra aspects of their history that we take from them, they will be deemed higher maybe than somebody who's coming in with a chest pain that might be from uh, pulled muscles or something like that. You know, So we have a way of being able to know it. And it's a very solid based international scoring system so this is why I refuse when people say that emergency departments can be done by appointments because absolutely not we yesterday for example we would have a patient who came in with a chest pain and ended up with a cardiac arrest so we know exactly that these patients certain patients with triage scores that are higher they do end up needing more emergency care. Um, so you have four different, categ- five different categories normally, one, two, three, four, five. So somebody coming in with a cardiac arrest where their heart has stopped beating would be automatically category one. Somebody with active chest pain might have a significant history that shows that we are suspecting a heart attack for this patient we will be given a category two. The majority of the patients would normally be a category three that may be somebody who's coming in maybe with uh, stomach pain that might be having say a gallbladder infection. Um, Not necessarily septic and we look for those at the triage markers. Uh, Category four might be somebody who's fallen over maybe hurt their wrist and somebody uh, for a category five might be somebody who's coming in with maybe a six-month history of toe pain or or something like that, and um, that they will be deemed lower in accuracy. I remember and going in myself after a too. fall
1: one time, Lisa. I, I took quite a heavy tumble outside my outside my front gate, and and I was in pain and there was something up. Um, I went to the ED, and I met a very very. Excellent nurse who went through the triage system with me, and I asked her. I said, what, "What's going on here?" So she explained what she was doing, exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. I said, "No, you know, you need to be seen because we need to be sure there isn't anything seriously wrong. I don't think there is, but we need to see you anyway." Now, have you got a book with you? Because you're going to be waiting. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. "Okay, that's fine." Can I have something? Because I'm in a lot of pain. And she, yes. she gave me paracetamol, and, and that's and I had to wait. I understood, but. The thing is, they're now so overcrowded, even that is hard to do, right?
2: Yes, so the triage, uh, we've seen more patients presenting with Category 2 and uh, and Category 3s coming in the last at least two to three weeks. So these are patients that are sicker. So we're getting uh, definitely on the ground. I've seen a lot more patients that are more septic. We've seen a lot more heart attacks. And uh, to be fair, I really feel that a lot of these are patients that may have decided not to seek medical attention for whatever reason either over a Christmas period or feeling that they didn't want to bother their GPs etc or may not want to have come to the emergency department but actually by the time that they come into us they're actually quite unwell with it. So category 2s category 3s and as you said PJ rightly so triage is also a point where we can give analgesia for patients so we would always document if patients are offered analgesia or if patients decline analgesia Um, so pain relief if they have a sore arm etc or if they've just taken their analgesia so somebody's taken paracetamol or neurofin or ibuprofen before they came in So that's all documented in it as well. Normally what we would have in in the emergency department in uh, Mayo, we have a booklet system or a little leaflet that we also give to patients to let them know about the categories. Um, We are working on a system as well to have a lot more awareness in the waiting room about the different categories and potentially how many are in on each category. Because I think that information is definitely key for patients when they're coming in. Mm. Not only when they're in the emergency department, but also if you're sitting at home now listening and having your cup of tea and you may have to come to the emergency department in two or three weeks time. At least you are armed with the information going, okay, there's a system in here that they're working. It's not because Mary down the road was going in before me that she might know somebody in there. Mm. It is an absolutely international system that we all use looking at who is going to be most unwell and who needs the emergency okay. care first. Okay. And you said actually about falling over. I mean, people say, oh, well, I've tripped and I've fallen over. But sometimes the trip could actually be somebody having a mini stroke. So actually, they might have lost consciousness before yeah. they fell over. Yeah. We tease that out in somebody that's having a that's triage. Right. So you might that's see right. somebody with a sore wrist and they come in before you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. actually, when we tease it out of them, they've had a loss of consciousness beforehand and then, therefore, that gives them a higher priority. Indeed. But you might see them with a the sore wrist in the waiting room. Indeed. But actually, their backstory is something different. Indeed,
1: indeed. Now, your Instagram at the moment is you've put up some some research and and some study results and three stark words here Lisa that are jumping out of your Instagram and you're saying this Mm -hmm. in your position as a consultant and pre-hospital doctor people are dying
0: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves
2: People are dying as a result of this. And we know this, PJ. There is research to show this. There was a massive study that was done over in the UK over the course of three years. And they just published it at the beginning of 2022. And the media did take up on it. But the research, the basic research that shows is that for every time that you have a patient that spends over six hours on a trolley, In the emergency department, for every 82 patients, one patient will die and have a direct consequence of that at the end of 30 days. So their 30-day mortality is actively affected negatively by waiting on a trolley for greater than six hours. Wow. That's, and that's we know true. this, this has come out and we've said this so often, we've said it so often prior to this, but now that we have the basic research, which was over three years, they had, I think it was over about 73,000 patients that they analysed over the UK for this. And We could definitely translate this to the Irish system because, and you know, I've got a huge amount of friends, I've done my fellowship over the UK, our Irish system was definitely, it was heading that way prior to to the English system. The English system is quite bad and under a lot of pressure at the moment. We, we talk about it quite frequently with my friends. But this is something that we've had for the last 10 or 12 years. But now we have act actual research saying patients are dying when we leave them on trolleys. And patients now, there's nearly 500 on trolleys this morning. Patients are waiting one, two, three or even four days on trolleys around the country. Mm-hmm. What does that do to their 30-day mortalities?
1: I've got a question for you to come back to the political perspective in just a second, but this has come in on the phone, and I do think it's a relevant one to put to you. Why, if an experienced GP has diagnosed a condition and advises someone then to go to the ED, why does the patient have to then again go through the A&E system to get admitted? Why can't they go straight through if they have a diagnosis in hand, as it were?
2: so they have two options actually so they can come to an emergency department but they can also come to an acute medical assessment unit so and I'm speaking you know I've had probably about 12 different DDs under my belt around the country throughout my training in Ireland um, and the majority of the times GPs do have access to the acute medical assessment unit which is where that they can book in the patient actually and get the full workup or whatever that they need to be done and potentially not avoid it or sorry not uh, have to be admitted but they can get all their work up done however if it's for a bed that they need to come in through an emergency emergency department, then if, so if it's a chest pain that needs further workup, then they probably do need to come in through the emergency department for it. So GPs do have the access. Now, the access can be very limited when mm. we have this bed surge because the acute medical assessment units are used as the actual physical space where patients may be on trolleys from the emergency department and are put into the acute medical assessment unit, therefore limiting the GP's access mm. to the acute medical so, assessment so unit.
1: facilities are overrun. So.
2: Absolutely. We need space. And I heard you saying earlier on about the trolleys and coming in, you know, to come off from the ambulance. And I, I work in the pre hospital as well. Good. So for somebody coming in off an ambulance trolley to come onto our ED trolley, I have found in the last two weeks we physically do not have enough trolleys. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. We have actually ran out of trolleys. this we've seen it every now and again, maybe over the last twelve years that I've experienced it, but the last two two weeks it's just been we have nothing to put the patient onto. So they're safer on an ambulance trolley than they are. And unfortunately, that is causing the backlogs into the Mm. pre-hospital system where we have paramedics and advanced paramedics that are waiting. They do try and um, do a cohorting policy, which is where one of the local ambulance officers, um, that is one of the National Ambulance Service policy, to come down and release the crews, two crews normally, and the national officer will actually, or the ambulance officer will stay with those patients while they're waiting for handover. Um, But again, that could be quite quite hard to do and the local officers may be deployed somewhere else etc. So, so everybody many. is definitely, there's so much pressure. So there's many pinch so points.
1: So many pinch points in what's actually quite a small area Lisa and you're painting a, an incredibly educational picture for us. Thank you for it. So come back to the politicians and let's just pick the man of the moment Stephen Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly is standing at the front door of your department right now Lisa. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do?
2: i would say, i would say, false shock. Around. Yeah, false shock. Well, just shock, and let's see, you know where you can feel that we can improve things, and um, you know, I, and I feel maybe it's coming across at times that I might be, you know, against the politicians. You know, they have a very hard job to do as well, and I do understand that over the last previous 10, 12 years, we've had successive ministers of health, and it. I hear it bandied about so much that it's the poison chalice that nobody wants. And I feel that he's a good fit. He's done very good work for other aspects um in our healthcare. But this it's not his fault. It's definitely successive. Governments that have created this problem, and that it's not, it's all resting with him at this moment in time. But I would actually ask him, please listen to us and treat this as the emergency that it is. And I treat it as an emergency like COVID was. We were able to get extra beds, extra capacities very, very quickly, and rightly so <laughs> when it was COVID. We have patients that are dying on trolleys, on trolleys, physically on trolleys, or within the 30-day mortality. Why can we not treat this as the same emergency that it is? We need the extra bed capacity. Even this morning, the nursing Nursing Home Ireland Chief Exec came out and said that, actually, he surveyed all of the private nursing homes, and they have over 700 beds that they're now going to give to the HSE and talk with the HSE about it. I'm this is fantastic. Hopefully this momentum will be able to be kept up that we can create those extra bed capacities. And if he can be able to do something to help that in the acute situation, then it would just be, it would help so many patients and frontline staff as well.
1: All right. All right. Tom points out here, Lisa, dur- during his time as Minister for Health, e. Ho- Charlie can't remember that name, reduced the hospital beds by a thousand and he was proud of it. They've never been replaced. On the other hand, when the health boards became the HSE, there was no problem retaining all the administrators. It's not run for the medical staff or the frontline staff. It's 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 an administrative network up there.
2: It is quite a, um, yes, it can be. And you sometimes feel as a frontline worker, this is me speaking as myself with experience, but also, uh, you know, from a lot of my colleagues and friends and one of my best friends is here as a clinical operations manager since I was 13. So the two of us have great old chats over this. And we just feel sometimes that we feel that we are the minority as frontline workers for the patients, um, that we feel we're in the minority and we're the ones that are actually physically in contact with the patients um, and I i know I'm a little bit beyond the Charles Hardy era but um, just even look at the statistics from the 1980s that we know that we have bed capacity that is a lot more in the 1980s than we have now so we had over 16,000 acute beds in 1980 when we had a population of 3.5 million. Now we have probably about between 10 and 11,000 acute beds and we've grown significantly in our population, at our aging population. So I don't know where exactly Charles how fit into that for the Minister for Health. But um, definitely around the health boards, between 98 and 2003, if you see the graph, and I put this up quite often on the Instagram, because mm. I think it's a very stark visualisation of our bed capacity going down. But between 98 and 2003, it just seems to tail off quite significantly at the amount of free beds that we have. And that may be the reduction that uh, the listener is talking about. And I have no idea. I have no idea why they were taken out of the bed, out of the system mm. knowing that the predicted growth that we have we, we get this every year our aging population you know and and the population is growing so uh, it's it be, it's beggar's belief for me but mm. i'm only a frontline worker i'm only a person that's patient-facing mm. so there's but, other people but, 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 that will
1: be able the to thing, have Lisa, you, you're not on just only a frontline worker you're the person trying to cope with this every single day and, and and I thank you for spending some time with me this morning to go through it and, and uh, thank you for, for the work that you and your colleagues are doing.
2: Thank you. It's nice to hear that. And, you know, patients will always come back and say thank you to us. And it's absolutely lovely. Um, one thing I always encourage patients that if you have a good experience, if you have any sort of an experience, but a good experience sometimes could be a little bit, you know, people are not as quick to kind of say it's your service, your say on hse.ie. And actually that gets to all the staff pretty quickly. So anybody that has any experience like that, what I normally do when it comes to us, and it would always come to consultants, I print them out, the, the patient's perspective, we put it up in the staff room, and normally if we have a break, we're sitting down, we're having a cup of tea and read these and oh, do you remember Tom when he came in? Do you remember PG in? And you know, it's a really nice kind of talking point because it makes us I say fills up our positivity cup. It makes us feel like, do you know what we are doing a good job. Despite when you come into work and you see all the headlines yeah. of the newspapers in the foyer saying hospital off fit for purpose or you know staff workers need to work harder etc this is where we get our little positivity filled up
1: I could fill a morning once a week with stories of people and their experience in in our system I could fill a -hmm. a morning sometimes I could fill two mornings but what I will say over 50% in fact three quarters of the people that I will have on the show will say but PJ the staff are brilliant but PJ the staff are run off their feet but PJ Mm -hmm. I don't know how the staff do it So the Mm -hmm. problem isn't with you guys. It's not.
2: Yeah, we know that... at the end of the day but sometimes it doesn't feel like it when you come into uh-huh. work and you know even when you hear it on the news and you're t- the, there's the headline news I think it was last week and I was coming and I was on call and it was like the pessimistic outlook is and they were talking about how it's going to get worse before it gets better and I'm just like right switch off the radio put on my my happy songs like because it's everywhere for us and we're constantly having to face that between media headlines etc and then you come into work and you're trying just to kind of do your best and try not have mm-hmm. that negativity for us. <laughs> um, But yeah, look, we love our job. Ask any emergency worker, ask any frontline worker. We have to be a special type of personality to absolutely enjoy this work that we do. And we really get great satisfaction out of having the patient come around be able to resuscitate them do our work whether it's even in endoscopy or whatever else it is um and we love it and we really want to continue on to be able to do it uh, the only reason that we're shouting so loud is for patients because we know the patient experience is not what we would like it to be for our mother our father our brothers our sisters so we keep shouting we would love if the public will keep highlighting this and making sure that their stories are heard as well and we know that the public are definitely behind us as workers. Mm. Um, We just need more beds and more care to be able to be given in a nice standard and Mm. a nice environment for our patients.
1: I've kept you from your patients for the last while. Dr Lisa, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, PJ. Thank you. Have a great day.
1: Thank you. You'll find her at uh, Dr underscore Lisa underscore Cunningham on Instagram. I think that's one of the most interesting conversations I've had on this show. ninety six FM.